Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 6th of June, and I'm Govind Raj Ethiraj with the core report coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Now to the headlines. India has produced some of the world's best performing stocks in the last two decades, says Goldman Sachs. Air conditioners are mostly made with imported parts, but that's changing. Why are companies sitting on so much cash? Shouldn't they be giving it out? And hmm, airlines have been asked to self-monitor airfares that are going through the roof. What does that even mean? This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Goldman Sachs hits it out of the park. After investment bank Morgan Stanley put out a glowing report on a 10-step plus 10 outcome approach that was entirely future-focused, another Wall Street giant Goldman Sachs has now put out, within a few days as it happens, an equally, if not more, glowing report on the India opportunity. The only difference is that Goldman looks at the definite past versus Morgan Stanley's likely future. Goldman has said in a detailed report, investing in India's medium-term growth story, identifying potential multi-baggers, that more than half or 54% of the NSE 500 stocks or 269 stocks generated 10-bagger returns or 10x returns within a rolling five-year period over the past 20 years. Goldman apparently studied 6,700 stocks to arrive at this conclusion and significantly India had the largest proportion of multi-baggers amongst 10 major emerging and developed markets. Goldman says India offers compelling long-term beta and outsized alpha opportunities. Within emerging markets, India's economy has grown sevenfold in the past two decades, delivering a nominal GDP compounded annual growth rate of 10%. Goldman Sachs says equity returns have matched this strong economic performance with the Bombay Stock Exchange 200 offering 16% annualized returns in local currency and 13% in US dollar terms, almost double the 7% offered by the MSCI Emerging Market Index. Now, MSCI, by the way, stands for Morgan Stanley Capital International. Some more numbers, and I know there are many, but do bear with me today. It took 54 months for Indian multi-baggers to reach their peak, achieving a median performance of 24x during their five-year period. 60% of those multi-baggers saw 20% revenue growth and 30% profit growth. Very, very important now. Half of them had an initial market capitalization of less than $50 million. If that tells you what or how to pick going forward and maybe what not to, like who are priced IPOs. The 269 multi-bagger stocks all share some common traits. 1. High realized growth rates. 2. High capital return ratios. 3. A mid and small cap bias. 4. Inexpensive starting valuations. 5. Domestic sector orientation. and 6. High promoter holding. As a comparison, China and Taiwan markets had only 18%, while US and Japan had 16% stocks generating 10 bagger returns as compared to one-third of the proportion of stocks in India. Interestingly, Goldman says the six emerging markets in its study, India, Korea, Brazil, South Africa, China and Taiwan, on average had 30% of their local benchmark stocks generating 10 bagger returns. The four developed markets, US, Japan, Europe and Australia, on average had only 20% of the stocks delivering multi-bagger returns. So if you had the stomach, or perhaps still do, India is a pretty sound bet to invest in anywhere in the world. So what could be the strategy going forward? Goldman Sachs says crises like the 2001 dot-com bubble or big dips essentially were good points to enter the markets and there have been quite a few. 
Perhaps COVID-19 in April 2020 was a good point too, though I didn't notice a mention, possibly because of recency and obviousness. Goldman has also identified several industries and sectors, and if you belong to one of these, perhaps this is a good point to note. It points out that sectorally, domestic cyclical sectors, that's investment and consumer cyclicals, have produced the largest number of multi-baggers, 54%. Specifically, cement, chemicals, capital goods and consumer durables and retail have seen the largest number of multi-baggers. While some multi-baggers also belong to non-domestic sectors like IT, exporters, commodity, the majority of them were from domestic cyclical sectors. Now, this suggests a strong tilt towards domestic cyclicals across multiple periods and historically. Going forward, Goldman says a stable macro and improving micro environment creates a runway for strong medium growth in the country and thus themes with an explicit policy support, energy transition and import substitution, including through the productivity linked incentive or PLI scheme to which I will come back with another report after this. Goldman also highlights overarching themes like energy security, self-sufficiency, import substitution and supply chain security under the broader Make in India initiatives and then a pickup in manufacturing and a capital expenditure cycle. It also talks about a large growth headroom in consumption sectors like QSR or restaurant chains supported by drivers such as rising disposable incomes, urbanization and favorable demographics. Apart from high income consumption, digitalization of consumption and services across digital payments, food delivery and online travel, formalization of credit, financialization of household savings and healthcare services. All of this broadly fits into that payments aspect that we've been talking about quite often here. And here are some very specific areas, which if you again, if you belong to them or you're watching them might be of interest. Broadline retail, tires and rubber, construction and engineering, construction machinery, automotive parts and equipment, textiles, construction materials, hotels, resorts, real estate activities, internet, media and entertainment, apparel retail, household appliances and real estate development. Now, these are many and could be quite common, but some of these might strike a chord to you. But the important thing to note is all these sectors, the ones I just mentioned, the three-year earnings compounded annual growth rate is above 15% for calendar year 23 to 25. So now, which are these stocks that made Indian markets shine in these last 20 years? I made a list of first the top 10 multi-baggers. So here they are, Westlife Foodworld, MMTC, Praj Industries, JM Financial, Patanjali Foods, Phoenix Mills, Capri Global Capital, KEI Industries, Delta Corporation, and Balakrishna Industries. And followed by another 10. And here is where it gets a little interesting because these are somewhat older economy companies. Lupin Laboratories, Godrej Industries, NCC, Ratnamani Metals and Tubes, Symphony, Kalpataru Power, Kaplan Point Labs, Avanti Feeds, Manapuram Finance, and Vedanta. Obviously, in some cases, you ought to have got in and out, maybe, for example, between September 08 and September 13 for Westlife Food World, or June 2002 and May 2007 for Phoenix. But timing the market is a different story for another time. The Goldman says the median drawdown is around 31%, so most of these stocks have not exactly crashed through the floor. By the way, another investment bank, Nomura, too, has said that India is set to acquire the fastest-growing economy tag in this decade alongside Southeast Asian countries. Nomura expects India to register a compounded annual growth rate of 6.6% in the next seven years until 2030, the strongest growth phase since 2010. India is set to replace China as the flying geese, thus unlocking its full potential, Nomura said. The flying geese paradigm, incidentally, was coined by Japanese economist Kaname Akamatsu in the 1930s, 
and predicted the rise of Asian economies in the time to come. The paradigm refers to the catching up process of industrialization of latecomer economies from the point of view of intra-industry, and that's competition, inter-industry, and then international. India's air conditioner makers import a big chunk of their raw materials, but that's changing. In the Goldman Sachs report, it referred to explicit policy support as industries that will do well. Given our general focus on industrials, when I say us, I mean the core report, I looked at one category, air conditioning. India manufactures around 7 million air conditioners annually and going by the temperatures outside and the way they're rising, this number is going to rocket in coming years. What I didn't know, though others may have, is that almost 75% of all the materials used in air conditioners made in India could be imported. Or put another way, local value addition may be only 25% in some cases. Now that figure may not apply to all kinds of air conditioners, but surely some. In terms of value, the value addition is considered around 50% by industry. Be that as it may, air conditioner components was one of the areas chosen by the Indian government as part of its productivity-linked incentive scheme efforts to build domestic component capability and thus bridge the gap. The key components of an air conditioner, which perhaps you know or have had the opportunity to see, are a compressor, tubing, printed circuit boards or the electronics of it. Some 36 companies, including big names like Daikin, Johnson's Controls, Hitachi, Havels, Voltas, Lucas, TVS, were cleared to go in November 2021 with committed investments up to 4,000 crore rupees. In March this year, the first of the investments began paying off when LG launched dual inverter compressors from its Greater Noida facility, making it the first brand to make its own compressors in India. Earlier, it mostly imported them from Thailand. Now, other manufacturers are obviously either gearing up or racing to launch in coming months. I caught up with a former government official who architected the air conditioner and LED light part of the PLI scheme. He is an IPS official, now superannuated, and his name is Anil Agarwal. And he was earlier additional secretary, Department of Promotion of Industry and Internal Trade, or DPIT, under the Ministry of Commerce. I began by asking him quite generally how his part of the scheme had fared. At DPIT, I was involved in designing and implementing this production-linked incentive scheme for white goods. And from white goods, you know, we meant the air conditioners and also LED lights. Now, objective of the scheme was that if we looked at air conditioners, the local value addition of air conditioners in the country was just about 25%. We were importing most of the components and whatever manufacturing of 5.5 million pieces of ACs was happening, uh, about 75% was import content. Now, you know, the idea was to incentivize manufacturing of those high-value components which make up the AC. So it was not just, you know, you get technology and uh, you just start assembling air conditioners. That scheme is designed in a way as to incentivize manufacturing of fundamental components and its downstream uh, supply chain. For example, in a typical air conditioner, the high-value bill of materials is comprising of the compressor. You know, there are copper tubing, there is aluminum foil, and then there are controls, the IDUs and the ODUs, the electronic component. All this is about 65%. It is all high-tech, and it is not being done in India in sufficient numbers, in sufficient quantities. So this scheme actually incentivizes production of these critical components. Similarly, if you look at LEDs, in LEDs, you know, there are things like LED chip packaging, 
drivers, engines, light management systems, and there are certain PCBs which are not manufactured in India. So we did not give incentives on assembling of these components. So somebody could, you know, import the components from anywhere and then start assembling units here. That was not incentivized in the scheme. And the scheme says only if you manufacture these components in India, then only you will be eligible for uh, incentives. Now, you know, the scheme was meant for about 6,200 crores and it gives incentive about 6% to 4% over a period of five years. Till now, there are 64 companies which have been approved by the government under this scheme. Out of these 64 companies, there are 34 companies which are manufacturing air conditioners components and 30 companies which are manufacturing LED components. Now, you know, there were two gestation periods given. One was 21-22, the other was 22-23. And if I look at the progress till now, let us say, you know, now we are in June 23 and up to March 23, there were uh, gestation periods were permitted. Now, as of this uh, total threshold, companies should have invested, all the companies, 64 companies, they should have invested about 1300 crores. They have invested about more than 2000 crores. In terms of employment numbers, if you see, they said that in these uh, two years, we'll generate about 11,800 numbers of employment. They have actually generated about 22,000 numbers. In terms of production, in these two years, they had projected about 1,300 crores worth of production and they have actually done about 2,000 crores. So this has been one of the successful schemes where you know all the thresholds have been surpassed. And these 64 companies are doing manufacturing of all these things across 125 locations across 16 states. So it's a widespread thing. And, you know, what is more encouraging is that, you know, the value addition of the components which are going to be manufactured in India is steadily increasing. Now, this is what is the basic feature of this uh, PLI scheme. Right. And, and you said that when we talk about 75% imports, whether it's an Indian company or a non-Indian company, right? So a Blue Star or Voltas would also be importing 75% of their components? Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Any company manufacturing air conditioners in India was assembling air conditioners with 75% import content and 25% only the domestic part. That is what I meant. Right. And today, what would be the percentage? I mean, and I know setting up a component uh, supply chain takes time, but what would be the value addition roughly today at this point of time? So in air conditioners, we are targeting about 80%. 80% of the bill of materials would be manufactured indigenously. And in terms of LED components, it's going to be about 85%. So if I give you the figures today, the typical you know bill of materials in air conditioners uh, we have incentivized 90% bill of materials of the air conditioners for this particular scheme. In LEDs, it is about 95%. So all those components which go into manufacturing one LED or one air conditioners, 90 to 95% of those components are to be manufactured in India if they were to get any incentives. That is the scheme. Right. So what's the timeline or how does it look in terms of timeline for this coming together? So you said 5.5 million pieces. So let's say next year we will make 6 million pieces. How many of those would have that le uh, the higher level of value addition that is being targeted or hoped for? See, uh, the, the, uh, the value addition will come gradually. For example, a compressor plant, 
a compressor has about 21% of the bill of material of an air conditioner. Now, this will take about two years and once they scale up the production, then only we can say that, you know, the value addition across all ACs is reducing. All these are projections are for the scheme period, which will continue till about uh, 28-29. These figures will be achieved by then. You can't say that, you know, today, how much percentage of this is coming up. Right, but it, it's heading in that direction is what you're saying. Yeah, it is heading in the direction. Number one. Number two, the number of ACs which were manufactured when we started, it was 5.5 billion. Today, they are already manufacturing more than 7 million. This is what is my uh, latest industry estimate. And, you know, by the end of this scheme period, we are actually likely to triple it. It's going to be uh, much more than 21 million pieces. And the industry is very, very optimistic. They are saying it can actually go to 24, 25. Right. Yeah. I mean, all we have to do is look at the temperature outside and I'm sure the market. Yeah, yeah. So, and in India, you know, uh, as you know, the country is developing, as per capita incomes are increasing, as you uh, have more and more people who can afford air conditioners, naturally there is a huge demand for air conditioners. And last question, uh, Mr. Agarwal. So, what are the lessons, I mean, that we've learned in this process so far, which in some ways maybe could could have caused a course correction or should cause the government to have some minor course correction. Because we've seen it in other areas. Let me tell you one thing. You know, the scheme for white goods in terms of air conditioners and all that was done with an active collaboration with the industry. So at every stage, you know, there were very uh, intensive consultations with industry on what is it that they would need. And I must compliment the industry also because, you know, they also came together. When we started uh, consultations, you know, there were two groups, for example, in air conditioner industry. One were all the multinational companies, one were all the domestic companies. When we started consultations, we were able to, you know, make them come on a common ground. Many times, you know, they see each other as competitors, but we were able to tell them, look, if you have to get a scheme like this, these are the things that you must do. And I am very happy to say that industry responded very well. Uh, they changed some of their fundamental presumptions and, you know, the way they work. And this scheme is a very good case study for a beautiful collaboration between industry and the government and the way this has turned about. And uh, the industry is actually very happy with the way this is happening. On our part, the government is looking at the developments in this sector very, very positively. And it is looking very promising as per what we had originally envisaged. Right. Uh, Mr. Agarwal, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your thoughts. Why are companies sitting on so much cash? Earlier, we spoke of how India has produced record multi-bagger stocks, thus returning strong returns to investors who obviously invested at the right time or got out in time or maybe in some cases are still holding on. Indian companies are also sitting on large amounts of cash, as is somewhat the trend internationally as well. The reasons could range from lack of sufficient investment or expansion opportunities which make it somewhat deep-rooted or simpler like an unprecedented profit run in recent years. Either way, investors could demand a slice of this cake. A study by proxy advisory firm Institutional Investor Advisory Services in their IIAS Dividend and Buyback Study 2023 says that based on 21-22 financials and adjusted for announced acquisitions and capital expenditures for 22-23, some 45 BSE 500 companies could return almost 69,000 crore or more to their shareholders or almost 41% of their balance sheet cash for the fiscal year end. 
The report says that while companies have been returning more cash to shareholders through dividends and buybacks in 21-22, cash balances continue to build up for corporate India. During the COVID years, companies conserved cash by lowering dividend payouts. In this study, IIAS identified 294 companies in the S&P BSE 500 list with excess cash but not necessarily sufficiently in excess to distribute. Anyway, so I caught up with Hetal Dalal, President and Chief Operating Officer of IIAS to understand why so much cash was slushing around in balance sheets and what companies could do and more importantly, investors could expect. Let me start by explaining how we've come to this number and essentially what we're trying to do. See, one of the big concerns of uh, capital markets in India specifically is holding of cash. And I think companies need to maintain cash. The position always is that companies need to maintain cash because you will need it for working capital, capex, you know, uncertainties. COVID has already taught us some of those things, right? And therefore, maintaining cash is something that companies must do. But the question we always ask is how much is enough? And therefore, our study aims to very conservatively estimate the quantum of excess cash that companies have on their balance sheets and whether these can therefore be paid out to shareholders in terms of dividends or buybacks. Now, while we've done this estimate, it is, of course, for the boards to decide whether the excess cash is distributable or they actually want to save it for you know potential uh, capex that they may have or even for unforeseen circumstances. But our view, therefore, is that therefore boards should explain they need to have this. Now, when we looked at 2020, we were like pre-COVID years. And essentially, at that point in time, cash holding continued to be a concern. And we've been writing several reports over the years talking about some of these uh, issues. What happened after Feb 2020 was COVID, right? March 2020, COVID hit, lockdowns came in and no vaccines inside. So therefore, the ability to understand really where this is going to end up became a, a challenge. I think at that point in time, we said that given the uncertainty around at that point in time, it was important for companies to conserve cash, which some companies did, right? And as vaccines came in, there was greater visibility of recovery of performance. Uh, companies started paying out also dividends and buybacks. So there was a lot of cash which actually then started exiting and going back to shareholders. Also, at the same time, when you look at it during the COVID years, right, there were some companies which did pay out dividends because there was a need to distribute cash at that point in time for shareholders. And MNCs actually paid out more than most of the other companies uh, during those years. So a lot of the cash has been paid out. There's also been a performance dip because of COVID. So therefore, you know, cash accumulation itself has been a little bit more limited because of which we find that number has come down a little bit in the current study the 2022 study. Right. So if we are saying that many of these companies are sitting on more cash proportionately than others, what would you say are the two or three key drivers of that analysis? As in, are you using historical CapEx as one indicator? Because future, I guess we don't know. Or is it something to do with the industry itself? No, see, this is not uh, an industry specific analysis. Although when you look at it, you know, there are certain industries which tend to generate a little bit more cash than uh, others. I think the way we looked at it is, is to say that let's look at the top 500 companies and the top 500 companies will account for at least roughly about 90% of market cap, a little above more than that. Now, you remove financial services because these are companies which use cash as raw material. So therefore, to take an argument saying, you know, banks have excess cash or NBFCs are holding excess cash has limited uh, sort of validity. So you remove financial services. 
and then you come to a number of 420 companies which are non financial services companies within the 500 right and then what we did was we looked at what is the quantum of cash that companies typically need to conserve first narrow it down to how much of the cash is distributable right so if you have companies which have reported let's say negative free cash flows or companies which have high debt equity or you know debt debitor ratios are relatively uh, sort of high then these are companies where you fundamentally believe that they do not have distributable cash so you bring that down and we came down to 294 companies and from there you look at which companies actually have cash which we consider to be excess and how do you determine that right you determine that by looking at past track record of capex and saying that sure if this is the average capex of the past 3 years or 5 years and this is the amount of expected capex you look at working capital we've also looked at total debt repayment let's say you minus from the cash the debt repayment minus adjust for contingent liabilities and cap that entire number at 50% of net worth right because if a company pays out dividend obviously the net worth that's it's going to impact the net worth and the company cannot pay out the entire thing as dividend so it's also giving it a more conservative approach by saying they're capping it at 50% what we've also done is manually then adjust the number for the announcements that companies have made in terms of acquisitions or they have announced a brownfield project or they have announced a greenfield project so we manually adjusted the number for that and then come to this number of 45 companies right so if i were to ask you to take a step back and say that and some ways this does relate to the earlier question as well what is the single biggest reason why companies are not deploying cash and am i also coming at it from the fact that not deploying cash is not a good thing too i think it just gets driven by uh, two things in my view the speed at which you are actually generating cash right it companies generate cash significantly faster than most of the other sort of manufacturing right so one is to say the speed at which you generate cash and the other is just the ability of the board to decide on capital allocation so i think when sebi came out you know we've done a lot of advocacy around this whole piece around capital conservation and dividend payouts and sebi came out with a regulation which said companies need to have a dividend policy now the top 1000 companies by now should have a dividend policy but the reality is that companies a lot of companies are still not willing to commit to what is the targeted payout ratio so a lot of the dividend policies don't carry a targeted payout ratios some of them do and companies like let's say infosys or bajaj auto have taken it a step further to look at dividend not just simply as a payout ratio but as a function of free cash flows as a function of the total quantum of cash that they have on the balance sheet right so for boards which are becoming more thoughtful about capital allocation they've got a formula and they've got a process by which they're going to decide for a lot of them it still becomes a more annual exercise to decide how much dividend are we going to pay out right and as you look ahead are you you advise a lot of uh, investor groups for example or institutional investors are you going to push your investor groups to including institutional investors to in turn put pressure on companies to return capital So I think the idea of putting out a report of this nature is to create more awareness around some of these issues. Now our view is that while we've done this entire estimate of saying that this is the excess cash on the balance sheet, it is finally for boards to decide or at least communicate to their investors on why they are maintaining this high level of liquidity. If they have legitimate reasons for maintaining the high level of liquidity, sure. If it's just the ability to think through and say that you know, do I need it or do I not not need it? Then sure, they should sort of look at paying out this. So I think investors need to engage rather than demand, and try and understand the rationale for this excess cash on the balance sheet and whether it is indeed excess. And that's for boards to explain. 
Right. And and last question, uh, how do you see this in contrast to what's happening with large companies internationally, for example, on uh, the NYSE or NASDAQ? See, I think um, there are market peculiarities, right? But dividend tends to be more company specific. Uh, that's something we've seen in the Indian context as well, board specific, industry specific and nature of uh, management specific. Uh, so you will see companies listed globally also, which don't actually have very high dividend payouts because they fundamentally believe it gets built into the stock price and therefore dividend is not something they're going to be focused on as long as there's capital appreciation. That's a philosophy. There are companies which equally in the global markets will pay out higher dividends because therefore, because you know a lot of retirement money goes into those companies in terms of investment and therefore the dividend needs to be paid out to generate a return for the uh, pensioners. So it really gets dependent on some of these factors as well. But by and large, I think um, having a more considered and thoughtful capital allocation policy is what we're trying to drive the market towards. Is not necessarily demanding that more dividend has to be paid out, but more pushing audit committees to be a little bit more thoughtful on do you really need that much cash? And are you not better off giving it to investors? Right. And, and a quick uh, addendum to my previous question, uh, Hetal. So you, you've used the word dividend payout all the time. So you're not talking about buybacks or... Uh, uh, Sorry, uh, it's more universal. Dividend and buybacks is basically returning cash to shareholders. Okay. So those are interchangeable in some ways? Yes, those are interchangeable from the conversation I've just had. That was Hetal Dalal. And by the way, five companies that could distribute almost 38,000 crores are Tata Consultancy, Siemens, ITC, Hero Motor Corp and Sun TV Network. So you know where you can start knocking if you're looking for some additional cash or dividends. And hmm, the government and the civil aviation ministry has asked airlines to self-monitor airfares on routes that have seen massive jumps in fares in the last month, notably those served by the presently grounded Go First airline which stopped flying on the 3rd of May. Now, it is not clear to me what self-monitor means because self-monitoring is what led to everyone jacking up fares the moment Go First stopped flying. And Mumbai-Delhi fares were or are the same today as Mumbai to Dubai. But then more Mumbai people have houses in Dubai, so they may not even go to Delhi, I think. Anyway, the problem is more fundamental and conceptual. India's airline sector is deregulated, which means prices cannot be established or regulated by the government. Prices are also set in multiple buckets, which means you could have got a cheap ticket had you bought it a month earlier, but will obviously have to pay a fortune if you try and buy a few days before. Nevertheless, the Civil Aviation Ministry, thanks to all the pressure being heaped upon it by various quarters, including perhaps people within the government, is compelled to call everyone and give them a gentle sounding, if one can call it that. Well, that's it from me. Have a great day ahead and see you tomorrow. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.